a notepad and a pen, you could get access to pretty much anyone in this world. My priority number one was to, was to get Warren Buffett to do an interview with, with us, you know, for, for a long time, he didn't do interviews with us, you know, so I kept thinking, you know, how can I get him to, to join? So lo and behold, a few months later, sitting there in Omaha, doing an interview with him. The other person that we talk about a lot, who is Elon Musk. And I asked him the question about fear. And I said, you know, you seem like someone who's just not fearful at all. You know, he kind of looked at me funny and was like, are you kidding? You know, I'm one of the most fearful people out there. My biggest fear is I just don't want to leave this earth and not have done the things I wanted to do and fear that. Hi there, and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. In today's episode, Emmett is interviewing Betty Lou. Betty, you might know from Bloomberg Television, she was one of the chief anchors before moving on to become the executive vice chairman of the New York Stock Exchange and chief experiences officer of Intercontinental Exchange. This is a great interview with one of the most impressive women in finance. Before we get into it, though, I just want to give a shout out to our friends at Vodafone Business. Now, if you're like us here at my Wall Street, you'll know running business is difficult. There are countless things to think about. Some get ignored. Some get completely forgotten about. That's where Vodafone Business can help. They've crafted a suite of tools and supports to boost your business's operation. And the best part is it's free for everyone. From cybersecurity to harnessing the power of AI, building a website or improving your team's work remotely, Vodafone Business will help you address the often overlooked but crucial elements for your business's success. To get started today, check out their one-to-one V-Hub digital support and advice service. You'll find everything you need right there. Find the link in our show notes or simply just Google Vodafone V-Hub for more. Hello and welcome everyone. It's Emmett. Betty Lou is one of the most respected thought leaders on Wall Street. Every chapter of her career is distinguished. She's a highly accomplished journalist who for over 25 years interviewed leaders such as Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, Elon Musk and and hundreds more. She developed several broadcasting franchises, including Titans at the Table, which focused on business leaders, reaching over 340 million viewers globally. In the Loop was the highest rated morning show on Bloomberg TV, and Betty was its sole anchor since the show's inception in 2009. She's an entrepreneur, having built and sold a tech-ed company, Radiate, to the ICE group. Following that, she was the executive vice chairperson of the New York Stock Exchange. She founded a SPAC called D&Z Media Acquisition, whose IPO is tenfold oversubscribed. She's the author of books. She serves on the boards of global beauty company, uh, uh, Lakatan. and. Loxitan. You see how often I buy it, Betty. I can't even pronounce it. Loxitan. And Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights. And today she is our guest on Stock Club and I couldn't be more privileged. Betty, you're very welcome. Emmett, so great to be with you. And I've (laughs) been a listener of your podcast, so it's exciting for me to be on your show. I've never had so many like amazing headlines that I had to include in an introduction to a guest. I mean, honestly, when I was looking through your resume, I thought, yeah, I got to leave that in or I got to leave that in. There was nothing you could leave out. There's so much to cover, but I'd love to start with the part that people got to witness, which was your career on Bloomberg TV. And you have sat in front of the most influential and successful business leaders of all time. And they've answered your questions. So I guess the first thing I'd like to ask you is at a 40,000 foot level, can you tell me what you learned 
from this cohort of incredible individuals. Yeah, I mean, I, I do consider myself very lucky that I had the chance to sit across from some of the smartest people in business. And also, you know, it's, it wasn't just the titans of business like Warren Buffett and Elon Musk, but really the range of people that I got to sit across, you know, from, um, you know, from government, government officials to entrepreneurs and, uh, and, and everybody else on the spectrum. So I think that that in and of itself is what in initially drove me to be a journalist is that, you know, with a, a notepad and a pen and a pen, you could get access to pretty much anyone in this world. Um, so in terms of, of what I've learned from from some of these people, and in particular, people love talking about, you know, Buffett and obviously talking about, you know, Elon Musk. Um, what I learned about, I would say, some of the people that that we talk about the most is that they're very much who they are on camera are very much who they are in real life. So, you know, I, when I first joined Bloomberg TV, I remember my editor came up to my desk shortly, you know, after I started and said, we need to get Warren Buffett to join Bloomberg television. And that's going to be your job. <laughs> so wow. that became my priority. Number one was to, was to get Warren Buffett to do an interview with, with us on Bloomberg television. And I remember that, um, you know, for, for a long time, he, he, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't on, on camera with us. He, he didn't do interviews with us. And, you know, so I kept thinking, you know, how can I get him to, to join? And, um, you know, I would send him letters. I would, you know, call his assistant and, you know, say, hey, you know, Berkshire earnings just happened. Can you come on the show? And of course, every single time I did that, the answer was always no. You know, there was no, really no incentive for him to want to do something for me. And so it wasn't really until I realized that I needed to sort of change my thinking when it came to getting him on on, te on uh, television and to join me for an interview. So my thinking changed when I said, you know, it's not what he can do for me, which is what mm -hmm. I want, but what I can mm -hmm. do for him. And so I started to think, you know, you think about people who are these billionaires, they've got everything, you know, at their feet, they've got all the money in the world. Um, but what, you know, what can I bring them? And it's surprise, and it's interesting, you know, they're just everyday people. Hmm. So, you know, I started to look up, you know, what is he interested in, in, you know, he loves bridge or sports teams he's interested in, et cetera. And so, you know, I sent him stats on the, you know, articles about his interests and it engaged him to the point that, you know, I remember one day I'd sent him um, an interview request and um, he sent me back a letter that said something along the lines of, you know, not right now. And I showed that to folks and they said, you know, that means he's going to do an interview with you. So lo and behold, a few months later, wow. you know, I was flying off to Omaha, you know, sitting in his Cadillac, you know, seeing all his newspapers strewn around his office and sitting there in Omaha doing an interview with him. So I guess I would say that, you know, uh, getting back to your question about, of, you know, what are some of the lessons I've learned? You know, one thing very clearly is that, you know, these are all people who are just like us, you know, and what don't be intimidated by them. Like you can have access to them if there's some things that you can bring to them. Um, and the other thing, and that, and that they're also, I think some of the best, you know, some of the people that are the most, um, I think the most, you know, quote unquote famous are, as I said, very much what they are on camera as they are mm -hmm. in real life. Um, the other thing I would say about, you know, the other person that we talk about a lot, who is Elon Musk, 
um, you know, I, I knew Musk when, um, you know, he was Elon Musk 2.0. I think we're now on Elon Musk version, you know, 13.0 <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. Um, but I remember sitting in his office one time doing an interview with him. And I asked him the question about fear, you know, because I, I believe a lot of, you know, a lot of our actions are based on, um, you know, unfortunately, fear and greed. And I said, you know, you seem like someone who's just not fearful at all. Um, you know, you just go straight for, you know, for what you want, what you want to do. Mm. And, you know, he kind of looked at me funny and was like, are you kidding? You know, I'm one of the most fearful people out there. Like, I'm afraid wow. all the time. And, you know, he said, but what I'm really afraid of is I'm afraid of regret. And that's my biggest fear is I just don't want to leave this earth and not have done the things I wanted to do and fear that, you know, fear that regret. And that really, you know, that was that one micro moment. I call those things micro moments of, you know, mentoring or, or coaching or whatever you call it, whether he meant it or not, um, that it kind of inspired me you know, I don't want to live a life of regret. You know, I don't want to have that. I, I want to have that fear of regret. If there's one fear I want, it's that fear of regret. And that's kind of what propelled me to accelerate my career. Oh, yeah. Amen. I mean, I think that that fear resonates with everybody. I think anyone who's kind of uh, the self-actualization journey we go on, you don't want to look over your shoulder and have this kind of path strewn with regrets. And I think regrets are mostly what you didn't do, not what you did do. You learn from things you did that didn't turn out optimally. But that is a really interesting insight from a guy who's basically out to colonize Mars. <laughs> if you're going to choose something, you may as well dream, dream big, as Martin said. So, you know, you've interviewed well, so I many regrets, I don't think. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've so much to choose from, but did any single interview over your 25 year career, especially leave a lasting impression? If you're to just pick one. Well, I would say, that, you know, the interview, the interviews I mentioned, you know, were really the ones that, mm. um, you know, that, that had the most impact on me. And, you know, it, oftentimes it wasn't what was said on camera that yeah. was, um, you know, that was important it's what people told me off camera that was really life-changing for me you know people what i remember one time you know with with buffett i think we were in sun valley and the cameras turned off and i just said to you know i said to him you know warren i've just always had this burning question for you and you know he said sure go ahead ask me and so i said you know what what is it like to be really really rich <laughs> i'm curious um, yeah. you know, his answer was really, you know, he, he said to me, look, um, being rich doesn't change who you are. It only makes you more of who you are. So if you're a kind person, being rich makes you kinder. If you're a jerk, being rich makes you even more of a jerk. Wow. And I thought that was so insight insightful. And I said back to him, I said, you know, I'd love to test that theory out. So I'm, <laughs> There's still time. Well, you I'm know, you like to bring testing it out. <laughs> well, listen, you you're like the the Graham Norton or the Jimmy Kimmel of business and investing. You've met more or less everybody. Have you have you ever been <laughs> have you ever been starstruck? Have you ever met a business leader? I mean, those three alone, Elon, Bill Gates, and Warren Buffett. Okay, let's park those three because I'm telling you, I, I don't know how I'd be able to carry off an interview with those three. Were you ever starstruck by anyone else? Or by anyone full stop? I, I think as a um 
I, I know I know why you're asking that question, I, but I think as a journalist, your job mm. is not to be starstruck. Yeah, you know, your job is to talk to these people, um, you know, as as your I don't want to say peer, but you know, your job is to stay grounded and mm. to you know and to talk to whoever that may be. It could be you know I've sat across from President Clinton and interviewed you know him at the. Clinton Global Initiative, um, you know, President Jimmy Carter, I sat across, he was one of my first big interviews when I was wow. at the Financial Times. And it can be very intimidating, but your job as a journalist is to stay mm. grounded and do your job. Um, so, you know, uh, so, so I guess that's my, um, that's my, yeah. uh, I'm not trying to Great. not answer your question, but but I do well, it's, think the, it's the right answer. It's right. like asking a surgeon, hey, were you nervous during my operation? The only answer you need to hear is no, I wasn't one bit nervous. It's all fine. You need to, that from a journalist. I should have asked you this yesterday so I could learn from you. But how do you prepare for an interview with such a high profile business leader? Are there any particular methods you employ to ensure a deep and meaningful conversation with the people you're sitting opposite? I mean, you sit opposite Jimmy Carter. You, 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 there's a whole world of conversation that you can dive into. There is. And, and, you know, you have to make sure as a journalist that you do your job, which is that you also do the research ahead of time. So the, the best interviews I've had are the ones where I spent the most time, um, you know, learning about the person, learning about the, you know, the, the news that affects that person or that that person affects you know, what the, their industries or their, you know, whatever news that they might generate with their comments. Um, so, you know, so the, a lot of the pre-work, I think, helps the actual interview, interview mm. itself. Um, yeah. But I think that once you sit in that chair, the, you know, the research is there as your, um, as your background. But what's really important is that you listen. Mm. You know, I think listening um, has been one of the, you know, one, one of the keys that, that has helped me, you know, distinguish myself as an interviewer is to really sit there and listen, because oftentimes it's not so much the answer, the first answer they give you to your question. It's the follow-up that you ask that generates mm -hmm. the most interesting answer. So you really have to sit there and, and, and pay attention um, and ask that follow-up that the audience wants you to ask. Um, yeah. So, so it's really paying attention, being there present, you know, being present during that interview that I think you know, really makes makes a great conversation. Yeah, it's a great point. It's a bit like on a letter. The PS at the end is usually the most impactful part of the correspondence. Yeah. You can't just PS that to me. It leads on to the <laughs> next question. <laughs> um, so you, you in your career, which we'll dive into in a moment, you have a very unique view into the intersection of media finance and technology, where do you see the most exciting opportunities for innovation at that unique intersection? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And it's a very hard question to answer, you know, because you could go in so many different directions. I mean, I've been lucky, you know, I can't believe I'm now at of this age where I've seen the media industry, you know, go from analog to digital you know, when I started, content was, you know, on television, on radio, on newspapers. And, you know, largely it was the organizations that created the content. Now you're at the point where it's really, you know, people that are, um, you know, generating the content. It's it's influencers. It's, it's people like you, Emmett, you know, that are 
you know, really having an impact on listeners and viewers as much as I would argue, you know, a CBS or a Disney or or whoever, Um, you know, and this, and that's, that's an increasingly um, important, you as influencers um, are, are, and content creators are increasingly important to the new generation of Mm. viewers and listeners and and media consumers. Um, And and I think that's kind of where I think, um, you know, media and technology and finance, you know, are going, which is, it's really all about the customer, you know, whatever can maximize that lifetime value of the customer and retain that customer. That's where the innovation is going to happen. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it could be anything from, and you're starting to see this already, you know, like, um, you know, having content directly reach commerce. So, you know, you're, you're watching content and you're directly buying off of that. I mean, you're seeing that on, on TikTok already. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, you know, that's going to be, be everywhere soon. Yeah. So, yeah. so, I, so I, I think the innovation is all, you know, always going to happen around, you know, how to, how to maximize that, that, you know, that value of, of that customer. And which to me means, you know, more and more customization, like new, you know, information that's customized to your interests. There could be dangers around that. I mean, we've seen people go down rabbit holes to very bad consequences, but, you know, overall, I think, you know, having content customized to you is, is, you know, is a good thing. Oh yeah. It's great. Uh, Even like when you think of Duolingo, which I'm a huge fan of, they recently implemented AI and it's now sculpting lessons around my pace of learning. So it's kind of like augmenting content, if what I'm hearing is correct, around the end customer, the end point. And this kind of open source approach to information is really the way uh, of the world. Uh, is that what you're saying? I, I, yes, that, I, absolutely. I mean, when I first started out, <clears throat> excuse me, media, you know, content was king. Yeah. And it was all about content and how much content, you know, could be, uh, uh, you know, it was content that really drove the business model. Mm-hmm. Um, I think content is still important. I would call content the queen now. And I would say yeah. the customer is king. So yes. it's, really yeah. about, it's really about what the customer wants. And um, and that's where, you know, business models are, are being built around is 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 customizing, to, <clears throat> excuse me, to the customer. Yes. So speaking of business models, I'd like to talk to you for a moment, Betty, about something that's close to both of our hearts, which is EdTech. Can you tell me a little bit about Radiate? What was it? What became of it? And what did you learn from it? Uh, That was like my third child. (laughs) (laughs) The first two are human beings, I presume. Yes, the first two are boys who are now are now uh in college so um i'm i'm happily an empty nester these days great congrats Um, but i did start yes i started radiate in 2016 and Mm. you know i've always been a big believer that you know to the point of um you know customizing and retaining um you know customers or viewers or listeners so to speak um you have to deliver content to them that gives them a return on the time that they invest in it so, you know, people watch content for all different reasons. Most of us watch content for entertainment purposes. You know, it kind of helps us, um, you know, forget about our troubles of the day. Yeah. It, you know, it's enjoyable. Um, but then a portion of us watch content to learn. And it gives us, you know, a return on that time that we invest. You know, people listen to your podcast 
and read your um, reports because it gives them a return. You know, they learn about stocks they wouldn't have learned and, you know, it keeps them coming back. And I, you know, firmly believe that people, I firmly believe that in that kind of content in both areas, but I think particularly in learning content, people will pay for that, you know, mm -hmm. and they will pay a premium for that content. So with that in mind, I started Radiate because I firmly believe that people were looking for um, a, a, an easier and um, more enjoyable way to learn management and leadership skills. You know, we, we had um, we have this whole cohort of millennials um, who and by the way, that, you know, they they've obviously grown older and they're now you know in more management positions. But at the time in 2016, you know, they were just emerging as leaders, as managers, as first time managers, and they have a lot of questions. Um, you know, they have a lot of problems to solve. And the easiest way I thought to do that was to deliver them videos, you know, that, that videos was a way for them to consume that con content really easily. So we interviewed 100, uh, more than 100 CEOs, and it was everybody from Tim Armstrong, Ariana Huffington, you know, we even had people like uh, Michael uh, Magic Johnson. Wow. Join Radiate, and they taught their own leadership and management lessons. And we made the video super short. So, you know, less than two minutes, because we know all of us have ADHD these days, and we can't pay attention for more than two minutes. Short <laughs> bite size, we call them snackable videos, and people yeah. could watch them. And in, you know, less than two minutes, they could learn, you know, a little tidbit of a, of a, of, of a lesson on leadership and management and apply that to their own lives. It, you know, it, it kind of, if I circle back to my prior answer, it was very similar to what, you know, Elon Musk taught me without realizing he was teaching me anything. You know, his story about the fear of um, regret was a, you know, micro mentoring moment for me. And so I was, so what Radiate became was a, a was sort of a, a, a platform to give, deliver people micro moments of mentoring in different areas. And we created this library of these videos um, of over 2000 of these videos. And we started categorizing them and, and giving people journeys, you know, how to, how to become a better manager. Um, and then in, you know, in 18 months, lo and behold, we, we got acquired by Intercontinental Exchange, which is one of the largest financial tech companies, owns the New York Stock Exchange. Still remember that phone call from the CEO. And I thought I was dreaming. Um, he, made, he made me an offer um, I couldn't refuse. Wow. And you know, next thing you know, where we've sold the company and I'm, I'm at the NYSE. So tell me, before we talk about the NYSE, is that content still out there? Is it still available? It, you know, it, it was available for a while on the mm. NYSE website yeah. and um, it became absorbed and it grew into other types of content that yeah. is now available at the NYSE. So it's not available anymore as Radiate. Yeah. But there, um, there are parts of that video, those videos that are in the current videos that are being offered at, at the NYSE and the content. I mean, people don't really realize this, but the NYSE generates a lot of content about business, about leaders. And so it's all part of that, um, those offerings. So you went into the NYSE post-acquisition where you took a very, very serious job. And a few years ago, my co-founder and I did uh, what was known as the IPO Ready program at the Irish Stock Exchange. And it was in collaboration with the New York Stock Exchange. And what kind of annoys me is we didn't get to speak with the executive vice chair, which at that time would have been you. So being as you're here, um, I'd like to ask a couple of questions about that. And I guess 
first is what observations do you have about the pace of new IPOs, or at least when you were in that role? And what stage are companies at today when they decide to float in comparison to when you're at the springtime of your career as a, as a young journalist? Yeah, it, it's an interesting question because, you know, we've, we've definitely been, I mean, I've, you know, tracked the IPO market, you know, even after, I, you know, I've left the NYSE, mm. um, you know, I started my own SPAC. And so we were very closely monitoring what was happening in the, you know, in the IPO market. Um, it's not a surprise that IPOs have, um, you know, have slowed down dramatically because the markets themselves, you know, have been very volatile. Um, mm. There's a lot of uncertainty. And, you know, as you very well know, Emmett, because you follow this so closely, you know, uh, uh, the uncertainty really causes action to to slow down and, you know, investors don't like uncertainty. And so, you know, until until there is a clearer view on what the Fed is going to do, um, you know, it, it's very likely that things like IPOs, you know, are going to continue at this sort of slow pace. Um, it's going to be select companies that go public, but not this huge wave of IPOs that we saw, you know, in 2020, mm, mm. Um, you know, and up until, you know, the early parts of, of 2021. Um, the, uh, but, but that doesn't mean that there aren't companies out there that are preparing to go public. I mean, going public is one of the, I, I think, you know, one of the, 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 the best ways for companies to, um, you know, I, I think uh, to me, I think of, of most companies ought to be looking at the public markets, you know, yeah. as, a, as a final exit. And the reason why is that um, I look at it from the investor point of view, which is, you know, right, you know, private companies are generating wealth for, um, you know, for a select group of investors, for private institutional investors. You know, we should give the opportunity for mom and pop to be able to participate in some of our most extraordinary companies. And to do that, you know, they they need to go public. Hmm. Um, I also think going public really, you know, is, it, you know, it's like bringing companies into the sunlight and, you know, you can't fake it like you can't fake, uh, you know, and I'm not saying private companies are fake. But what I'm saying is that you can't fake your numbers, you know, as a public company, you certainly can't do it for very long without getting caught. Because mm -hmm. I think, you know, there is this level of transparency and there's this level of regulation, you know, that does ensure and protects investors. So I, you know, I do, you know, I, I drank that Kool-Aid when I was at the NYC. I do firmly believe that, you know, that our companies should be public. Um, but like I said, I think there's, a, you know, a pipeline of companies that are, you know, that are ready to go. Um, I think that, you know, companies should be that want to go should be preparing. And that means, you know, you prepare for an IPO years before you actually do it. Um, you know, you have to have audited, audited financials um, going back several years. Um, it's best to have a CFO who is public, you know, who, who knows the public space. Um, you know, to have a board that is a, a professional board. Um, you know, a, a management team that, you know, that knows the public markets, like, you know, there's a lot of preparation ahead of time. And that usually doesn't happen, I think, until after a company raises, you know, maybe, a, a, you know, after after a Series C, you know, going into mm. Series C. And, you know, th that's usually when I think a company has product market fit, you know, yeah. has enough revenue to justify being public, has a, you know, has a pathway to profitability if they're not profitable already. You know, those yeah. are some of the things to, to be thinking about if you're if you're an entrepreneur now. 
I really want to dive into your SPAC story, but before we do, um, I just want to touch on something else, which is when you were in the NYSE, I believe you set up the NYSE Board Advisory Council, and it was made up of companies like Goldman and Coca-Cola and Procter and & Gamble and Uber and so on. Can, can you talk to me just for a few moments about the future of boards? Because I think anyone who's involved in a business or involved on the board of a business can see in front of them very necessary change and i'd love to just hear your thoughts on that yeah i was um a, uh and i am a very big advocate of you know of diverse boards and i don't just mean diverse in terms of race or gender although that is you know the, the it, that is the most obvious um you know sort of first step for mm. for you know for many boards but it's also diversity of skills and backgrounds and I really do think that, you know, as, as boards continue on um, and they, you know, look to replace their members that, you know, that, that, that management teams as CEOs at chairs of boards are going to be looking more at skill sets of new board members. And I think some skill sets are going to be more important than they were in the past. Um, you know, corporate reputation, given how, you know, how big social media is this day, these days and how people you know, get their information from, you know, from social media, I think managing your corporate reputation is going to be more and more important. And so people in communications or marketing, you know, might become, uh, you know, maybe joining boards that, that normally they may not, you know, have mm -hmm. been considered for. And then obviously, um, people in technology, and, you know, you know, we've talked so much ad nauseum about AI and, and, you know, uh, and the metaverse and, and, things like that. I think people who do have that knowledge base are going to be sought after, particularly on yeah. from boards that belong in more like legacy industries, you know, so you're thinking banking or energy or, you know, whatever, um, you know, whatever industry that's not, you know, normally associated with technology. So I think it, it's, it, it's, it's finding people with those skill sets that I think are, are going to be, you know, as important as the people who traditionally now are on boards who are, you know, who are um, uh, overseeing compensation and obviously, you know, executing their governance duties. So, yeah. so that I, I think is, is going to be a, 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 you know, continuing trend for boards. Excellent. So just two years ago, I think, or two and a half years ago, you founded a SPAC uh, D and Z media corporation. Where did the name come from? <laughs> Can you tell me the story about the SPAC? Well, I'm about to embarrass my kids very much. Um, and this was not terribly creative, but D and Z are the first initials of my two boys. Well, it's no better name, so that's excellent. So they have that honor, but it was really sort of like, what what do I find the name? Okay, let's just do that. You know, it was very, it was very uh, maybe one of my least creative endeavors. But well, it's supposed to be a short shelf life name. You're meant to merge with something and then kick that down. Exactly. You know, exactly. So tell me about it. How did it go for you? Because really SPAC was the hottest trend before AI was in fashion. Yeah, SPACs were a very hot trend. And actually when we were at the NYC or when I was at the NYC, you know, in 2020, um, we started seeing more and more SPACs list on the exchange and it kind of piqued my interest um, that it is. And it still is to some degree for some companies mm. um, in a, a more seamless way, a quicker way to get to the public markets. And these are, you know, particularly for earlier stage companies, um, you know, unfortunately, so we, we, so we launched our IPO in January of 2021. And that was, I would say probably the peak 
of the SPAC boom. And our, you know, our SPAC was 10 times oversubscribed. We raised $288 million. Um, and literally, you know, timing is everything. Six weeks later, um, you know, the SEC came out with some rules that, you know, that really put a big burden on, on SPACs. And then after that, the Fed started raising rates and, you know, the markets became extremely uncertain and, and, and everything started to, you know, started to um, really fall apart. So, you know, we still hung in there, though. And, you know, we talked to probably, I don't know, over 200 companies and we, you know, signed three LOIs um, and we were very, you know, there were definitely a good number of candidates that we really wanted to take to the public markets. But unfortunately, you know, as we were saying earlier in this program that, you know, investors hate uncertainty, the markets hate uncertainty, and it's very difficult right now to, to raise capital. Mm. Um, and so we decided, you know, at the end of the day, or I decided really that, you know, we really want to take a quality company that deserves to be public, public. And if we can't find that, then we're going to return everybody's money. And so, you know, I didn't, I wanted to, you know, my reputation is very important to me. Our reputation, you know, we had a world-class board, we had people like, um, you know, Brian Grazer on our board and ICE was a, you know, was a financial backer of the SPAC. And, you know, we had to put our name and stand behind the company that, you know, that we were going to take public. So I really wanted to make sure that it was a company that we knew was going to, to be a public company for the long term. Um, and at the end of the day, we decided that the best course was to, you know, was to return everybody's money and see how the markets play out. And, you know, we'll see in the next, you know, in the next 12 to 18 months. But in the meantime, I think, I, you know, I learned two really valuable things out of this, in, you know, journey. And one, one is that, you know, even at the NYC, you're, you're still sort of a third party observer to companies that are going public. You know, you're helping them, you're in partnership with them, but you're not really like, you know, day to day, you know, in the trenches with them. When you're a company that's merging with another and taking going public, you are in the trenches with them. And so I got to see up close, you know, mm -hmm. and experience the IPO process, essentially the IPO process um, in real time with various different companies. And so that is a wealth of knowledge that I can bring to companies that I'm advising now and, you know, public company and boards that I'm sitting on and company startups that I'm advising, I can bring that knowledge to them. Um, the second thing I learned is that, you know, when you raise $288 million, everybody will answer your phone. So, you know, whether you're a man or a woman, um, you get a seat at the table when you've raised a good chunk of capital. And, um, and that really sort of opened this, this uh, view of mine or, excel, you know, sort of enhanced this view of mine that women, I think really, you know, not only are we important consumers, but we need to be important investors. You know, we need to we need to be capital allocators, and that's at the institutional level. You know, whether it's it's you know managing portfolios, but it's also at the retail level. You know, women are still far behind men when it comes to investing, and you know we have to have if we want a big a bigger voice in business and in this world. You know, we have to own that capital, and so you know that that has become kind of a personal. Um, passion of mine or a life mm. purpose, which is to get more women to invest. And no better passion and no bigger goal, I have to say. And before we move off the subject, hats off to you for your integrity with what you did with your SPAC. I only wish other promoters had had the same uh, inner voice as you had and the same sense, because honestly, I think there's very few active investors who in the last two to three years were not seriously burned 
by the good word of a promoter or what was purported to be the good word of a promoter, a promoter. But anyway, that's that. So before let's, let's bring it up to a Zen level, uh, Betty, you are sitting at the hub of the world's capital system. And when you're in the New York stock exchange, it was the crosshair. What have you learned in your career? Um, and in all your years of discussing effectively matters to do with money, what have you discovered about people's relationship with money? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think people have a complicated relationship with money. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I think that people often let um, fear and greed drive their decisions around money. And I have found that anytime I let fear or greed drive my decisions around money, I 100% regretted that decision or that action. So, um, you know, my inner compass now is that I check in with myself, you know, anytime there's an investment or, or any decision I make really even, you know, a life decision, if it's out of fear or out of greed, I'm out, you know, I don't, I don't make that decision. Um, That's great. It's a great barometer to have. It's it, it's it's taken a lot of mistakes, Emmett, to to get to that barometer. You and me both. I've got an inner compass there. Um, I think the other thing also is is men and women have different relationships with money. You know, I think I hate to generalize, but you know, you need to kind of have some generalizations. Mm. Um, you know, when uh, in in many ways, when you're you know when you've got a view on this, yeah. um, you know, I think men you know, people often talk about how men are more risk takers and, you know, and I think to a large extent that that is true. You know, I think men also approach investing like it's a sport, you know, they're betting on stocks, you know, maybe it's a little bit of, uh, you know, gambling or it's, you know, sports betting, like they're betting on. And you saw that, of course, with the meme stocks. I mean, that was kind of, you know, betting to an extreme. Um, but you know, mostly that was men doing that. So I think, mm-hmm. I, I think there oh, is yeah. this element of like, you know, that, that the stock market is a game. And I see that by the way, with, with my own sons, you know, they're, they got interested in investing early and for them, it's, you know, it's a little bit like it's, it's a video game for them. It's a sport, you know? Um, but I think for women, it's, it's, it's not, I, that doesn't appeal to us. We're just not, we're not, you know, that 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 that, sh- that might be appealing to some, but not to a majority of us. For us, investing and in our relationship with money is more around, you know, how do we protect our assets? Um, how do we, you know, is the money that we're investing is it going to grow and be there for the long term? Um, and so, you know, we're we're looking for more safety than we mm. are looking mm. for risk. So, you know, I think it's it's it, it it's it, it, so it's two very different intentions when it comes to you know when it comes to that relationship and i i do think generally speaking women are a little you know less um less they're, they're more risk averse mm. so you know but the i think the challenge for women and, and money and, and women and investing is even just getting to do something in the first place you know there's yeah. just a great yeah. inertia um it's okay i know i need to do it but there's the but how do I actually do something? You know, that inertia is, is extremely powerful. And I think, you know, inertia is probably one of the most powerful forces in the universe that prevents us from, you know, getting what we want, whether it's getting what we want with our money or getting what we want with our lives, with our careers. Like it's, you know, a large part of it is just getting over that inertia. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think they're truths that would resonate with everyone. And when you when you say generalizations, or we talk about generalizations, they they apply. Anyone who's listening to this show knows that the, the, on average, the females in their life are a little more risk averse than on average the males. And it's just yeah. a truth that cuts through. And the unfortunate thing, as you said, is that that it's like uh, one's strength becomes one's weakness. And it's a real shame that more women don't participate in investing because that very strength of a conservative nature will lead them yeah. on to what you will say are more stable, lifelong stocks that they can buy and own until they're in their 80s or 90s. And I think it's a, it's a great pursuit that you've got. Yeah, Betty, and, and, and I right. will say, Emmett, um, if I could just add this one thing, yeah. what, is, what is interesting, what I found in, the, in researching this, and I'm sure you found this too, is that when women do invest, Mm. Um, they slightly outperform men. Oh yeah, they yeah. do. And Charles Schwab, we sp- my co-founder John spoke to Charles Schwab, the person when we were founding this business, and he showed John the data that women outperformed men. And the only yes. cohort that outperformed women were the deceased because they didn't touch their portfolio at all. And uh, <laughs> so it's it's this kind of not. It's, as you say, gamifying or making a sport of your investing and buying a business because you believe in it, accepting that the share price will move, but you're really in this for the long term to create wealth. And I think that a woman's brain is more naturally wired for that behavior than men. But um, that's the great opportunity for you, Betty. I can't pursue that. Look at me. <laughs> <laughs> we'll let you in, Emmett. I think we get <laughs> okay. okay, look, last question before we let you go. I'd like you to reflect on your career and your experiences and ask you, what's the most important lesson that you've learned that you'd pass on to the next generation of journalists or business leaders or indeed your two sons? Well, so I, I've thought about this, um, you know, uh, because I've, I've been asked this before about, you know, what are some what are some um, lessons to pass on to, to journalists and also, as you said, to business leaders. And, and I, you know, I've come around to a few few a few of them, actually. So one for journalists in particular, um, I think if you aspire to be a journalist, um, you aspire to be a content creator, uh, finding your niche is extremely, extremely Mm. important. You know, I think, I think, you know, finding your niche and going all in on it. That's kind of how I started my career as a journalist. Um, You know, I, I was doing business news when nobody wanted to do business news. It was, you know, we didn't have the Elon Musk's of the world in the, you know, in the 1990s, it was all very, you know, people didn't, didn't Mm. really think business news was sexy. It may not be that sexy right now, but it's certainly sexier than it was back in the nineties. Um, and my niche was really uh, focusing on the capital markets, the bond markets, actually, in Asia. That's how I started off. And I made a name for myself in this sort of very, you know, kind of tiny corner of, um, of, uh, of, of business, of business news. And so I think mm-hmm. finding your niche is, is super important. I think just overall, in terms of like, you know, what is the advice that I would, um, I would pass on to my, my own kids and to the younger generation is, I think one is really you know, it takes, and this is something borrowed from Buffett, you know, it takes many, many years to build your reputation and only 10 seconds to ruin it. So, you know, really be, guard your reputation and continue mm. to nurture that and, you know, and, and, and understand that, you know, in a moment it could go away if you do one bad thing. 
So, you know, so I think your reputation is, is extremely important. And I think it takes years and years to build that. And part of building that reputation is to be a consistent person, um, you know, be consistent, be kind, um, and also, you know, remember to say thank you. I love that consistent, kind and gratitude. And I couldn't agree more. Betty Lou, it's been my absolute pleasure to chat with you here today. I hope we can entice you back again for another conversation at some point in the future. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Emmett. Great, great interview. Lastly, before we finish up, a thank you to our friends at Vodafone Business. If you're a business owner and need a leg up or getting started on your digital transformation, get yourself over to Vodafone V Hub today to book your appointment. Uh, you can find the link in the show notes for today's episode or simply just Google Vodafone VHub. That's it for today's show, folks. Uh, I really enjoyed listening to Betty and Emmett's conversation. Remember, if you have any questions you'd like answered or elevated pitches you'd like to tackle, simply just get in touch. You can find us on Twitter at MyWallStreetHQ, on TikTok at MyWallStreet, or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, leave us a review, share us with your friends, and we'll talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.